Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. This is Shannon, and tonight I'm here with Amber and Brooke, and we are going to have a social justice episode. So at first, when I envisioned this, I figured we would have like some novels, maybe some memoirs, maybe some other nonfiction. No, that's not how it is. We have almost all nonfiction for you tonight. I have one novel, and I think Amber has one novel. The rest is all fact. So we are going to get started with the usual housekeeping information. Then Amber will start us off, followed by me and then Brooke. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so my first book is actually, uh, I figured, you know, start off with a young adult novel. Um, <laughs> and this book is Even When Your Voice Shakes by Ruby Yaira Goka. So this takes place in Nigeria. And we meet Amerly. And Amerly and her family live in a small beach community and they are very poor. Uh, it is Amerly and her mother, her father is kind of in and out of her life and her little sisters. And at the beginning of the book, Amerly's mother is very depressed because her father has left and her younger sisters cannot afford to go to school Amerly is a seamstress, but in order to really become a great seamstress, she knows that she needs to be, you know, go to school and she wants to go to school to design fashions, to be a fashion designer. One day, one of her mother's old friends comes to visit and this woman is very rich. And it ends up that Amerly actually begins to work for this woman. She lives in the city and she has a very decadent household and she needs a maid. So Amerly's mother basically says, you are going to go live with these people. You will uh, be their maid. And uh, no, no spoilers, um, you know, Amerly goes into the household. She's there for a while and she is actually, um, she's actually raped by the uh, son of this woman. And Amerly as a, a uh, young girl um, in this culture, 
you know, rape is often seen as, you know, something that, you know, what was she wearing? What was she doing? Why was she there? Um, and there's actually, during the book, there's actually a very interesting conversation that occurs around that topic. And Amerly has to decide what to do. She has to decide, you know, is she going to stand up for what happened to her? Is she going to report it to the police? What are her, what is her family going to do? How is everyone going to react? And, you know, it's an interesting and great message, you know, that is sent to young adults about, you know, consent and sexual relationships. And, you know, the fact that even when your voice shakes, you can stand up and make a decision. Um, so my first book is Even When Your Voice Shakes by Ruby Yara Goka. That sounds really good. I'm going to have to find it. Yeah, um, it's a really, really short read. I literally read it in two or three hours. So, you know, the nice part is, is it's got, um, you know, it's, it's really packs a punch, but it's not too brutal. It doesn't, you know, really, really all of the action of the book kind of takes place in the last third. Ah. Um, and there, it's a very slow build. So yeah, definitely uh, one to check out for sure. Yeah. All right. So my first book tonight is Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City by Andrea Elliott. This was, it started as a piece of investigative journalism. It was covered in a few articles in the New York Times, and it was later expanded into a novel. Um, it's pretty long in audio. It's about 21 hours. Um, I think the, the print book is close to 600 pages. But this is the story of one family. And it's a family that lives in New York City. They are one of the many, many homeless families living in the city. Um, and it starts out like we first joined them in about 2012. We then move forward and backward in time as we kind of chart their like the progress of, of their lives, but we also learn quite a bit about their ancestors and kind of how they came to live in the city and, you know, to be kind of the people that we come to know. Um, the main focus of the story is Dasani. And when we first meet her, she is just about to turn 12. She is starting middle school and really struggling, she lives with her parents and her seven siblings. They're eight children altogether. They're kind of a blended family. And they live in this one apartment that is part of the New York City shelter system. And this apartment is like pretty terrible. Um, there's always like mice and rats running around. Um, there's a sink that doesn't work. There's mold growing all over the place. Like it is not a great place to live. And yet there are 10 people crammed into this apartment. And I think it basically, I'm trying to remember, I think they said it was something like 500 square feet. And if they're not home by a certain time each night, they are locked out. And they are then forced to head back into like downtown New York and find this intake center where they are routed to perhaps the same apartment where they you know, had been the night before, 
or another in the very, very huge sprawling system of New York shelters. So Dasani is someone who seems to do really well in school and her teachers notice her pretty quickly and they start wondering if there's a way out for her, if there's a way that she can get some opportunities that her parents and her grandparents and her younger siblings just haven't had. And so ultimately she leaves her family and heads to a boarding school where they're hoping that she'll finish high school and you know, perhaps even go to college. This is really hard on Dasani because she has been kind of like a parental figure for her siblings, even though her parents you know, have both been in the picture. Um, her mother and her stepfather, who is pretty much, you know, who are the people who've raised her, um, both have some drug and alcohol issues. Um, and a lot of the responsibility for the younger kids falls to Dasani. And so it's hard for her to, you know, leave that behind and focus on being just like a normal kid in a school. Um, we follow this family up until Dasani is about, I think she's turned 18 when the, no- when the story ends. Um, I keep wanting to call it a novel because it reads very much like a novel. Like it's not, it's not dry. It's not full of like facts that, you know, make you feel like you're reading a textbook. It's definitely very fact-based, but the author's writing style really pulled me in. Um, she stayed in contact with this family for a number of years and learned not just about their daily lives, but also like their family history. And she also did a lot of research into what homelessness is like for so many of the people living in New York City. Um, This is a hard read at times. I, I felt just so so sad as I read parts of this, but I think it is a really important book um, to kind of show us that there are people even you know today that are living in less than livable circumstances. So this is Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City by Andrea Elliott. I don't know why this book was actually on my radar for a really long time. <clears throat> and I thought I put a, a hold on it, but I guess it turns out I didn't. So I just oh, no. did. Another good, um, it's an older book, but if you're looking for something that also deals with homelessness in New York City, there's a book called The Mole People, which looks oh. at the ways in which people have been living in the abandoned subway tunnels underneath the city. Mm -hmm. The mole people. All right, got it. I'll look that up. So my first book tonight is The Inconvenient Indian, a curious account of native people in North America by Thomas King. So this book has actually been on my TBR list for, I don't know, several years. I've been wanting to read it forever because Thomas King is actually a professor at the University of Guelph. And I'd always wanted to take one of his courses, but I didn't get a chance to. So I was so excited about this book when it came out. And I just, I don't know why. I just never got around to uh, reading it. So thank you for the opportunity.
So this book is very much the history of North America of North American um, indigenous peoples. Like it, that's really what it is. But he writes it in such a way that it's very, it almost is kind of like how Shannon was saying that her, it's not really like, it's got facts, but you don't feel like you're being bombarded with facts. So we start out um, with Columbus coming to North America. And he talks about how Columbus wasn't really the first one to discover North America, there were actually other people who discovered it. And actually, nobody really discovered it because, well, the indigenous people were here before anyone ever came. So it was already discovered, really. It just wasn't on somebody's fancy map. Um, Then he kind of like evolves into talking about how we only really, in our history books, we learn about the more like well-known um, battles. So we have like Custard, you know, everyone knows Custard. Um, we learn about like Louis Riel here in Canada and all that that happened with them. But then you don't really learn about like there's some battles that so many more people were lost and we don't really learn about them. It's kind of like, wh- why is that? And so he kind of discusses that. And then he kind of like evolves then goes into talking about how um, he talks about, it's going to sound kind of funny, but he starts talking about like cowboys and Indians on TV and how we're always seen as like the drunk guy, there's the drunk Indian, the dead Indian, there's never like the hero Indian, like rarely do you have that kind of connotation and then he was talking about how like the only there's only a couple maybe I think two native people who have um stars on the walk the Hollywood Walk of Fame and one of them is Will Rogers who actually never played an Indian um even though he himself is indigenous and then we also have another um native person who only ever got to play um, Native characters. So it was kind of interesting because he talked about, like, why is this? Why are Native people always, like, kind of stuck with these Native parts? Because there really are no Natives out there that act and who actually have non-Native parts. And then he talks about, like, how, why is this when, like, Denzel Washington or... um, Will Smith, for example, they're the heroes in their movies. So he talks about this and how there's this whole idea of um, Indigenous people, even in our popular culture. So then he moves into um, laws and policies and how the government, both in Canada and the US, they really treat Native people like children. Um, they tell us like who can be like who can be native. Um, so here in Canada, you have to have a certain like um, you have to have a certain like percentage. Um, it doesn't really matter if you're like taken in by a tribal group. It really doesn't matter. Like they, it's a, this whole percentage idea, 
And so in the 1980s, a lot of women, Native women here in Canada, were losing their status because they married white men. So he talks about the injustice of that and how um, like women really weren't treated well. And there was this whole idea that you could become native by marrying like a native man or you could become like you kind of become unnative, which is kind of funny, but you, be, you lose your native status for marrying a white person. So he was talking about all that and how there's many generations out there now who are like, even though they might have the right percentage, they still aren't considered native. So he talks about that. Um, and then he, he goes into, and he talks about how, well, maybe, maybe we should like, just forget about all the, all the crap that happened. And like, let's start life in 1985 and like start our history books there. We'll just kind of like trash all the notes from everything before. So then he starts talking about some of the things that are happening like more recently. And you, you begin to realize that like nothing has really changed. We're not really learning anything. The government is still treating native people like children. Um, they're still taking away land giving and saying they're giving it to them, but then like giving, so saying like, put, they have this like treaty arrangement and always the native people end up with less than, well, less than they should. Um, so one thing that he kind of like closes with is that we're never going to be able to solve anything until we know, we ask the question, what do white people want? So I thought that was like, I thought that was kind of, I don't know, amazing. Like I never really, I don't know why it's kind of sounds dumb, but I never really thought that way. And it really got me thinking. So I really liked this book because of the way he writes it. You know, there's all this information you get, but he writes it in very much a conversational tone. Like there's spots where like his wife is also a professor. I can't remember what she teaches, but she's also a professor at the University of Guelph. And he'll write things like, Helen says, I need to add some examples here. And then he'll tell you like an example. So it's kind of entertaining in that way. And he also brings in some of his own experiences from his life. So this is The Inconvenient Indian, a curious account of native people in North America by Thomas King. This looks I'm glad really you talked good about that. Yeah. I'm going to have to get it. So my second book this evening is The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, and it's written by Malcolm X and um, Alex Haley, who wrote Roots. So before I, I actually read, read this, Roots. it's you should. Like I know I should. Yeah. I, I own it. I just have never actually yeah, read no, it. No, no, no. I've never no. seen the show. Oh, no, really? No. Oh, man. I, I need to uh, Yes. So I never actually knew much about Malcolm X before I read this book. Um, and what I did know about Malcolm X was that he was very violent. He 
Um, you know, he was encouraging, you know, African-American people to be violent against white people, um, you know, just all the bad stuff that I think people hear about Malcolm X. So, you know, I went in and as I was reading the book, um, you know, this was a very different read for me because um, the book was actually, I mean, it was written in like 1974, 1973, um, you know, shortly before he was assassinated. Um, and so just the way the book was written was, you know, in a way that I wasn't necessarily used to reading. Um, but, you know, it was, while, while I was actually reading the book, I found myself during a part of the book, not liking Malcolm X at all. Um, and I was really upset as I was reading the book. And then I kind of stepped back and I went, what, like, what is making you angry about this? Um, and, you know, there was a very large part of the book where Malcolm X was like, I don't like white people. Um, white people have been the cause of every, you know, bad thing in history that's happened to black people and brown people and Asian people. Um, and, you know, like I really found myself getting really defensive as I was reading the book, but then I kind of stepped back and I said, why are you angry? Is it because of what he is saying or because you agree with it and you don't want to? Um, and then, you know, as the book goes on, he goes on, um, pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, he goes on the Hajj and um, he, you know, he, he starts to kind of rethink how he thinks. And, you know, he starts to realize, hey, some people are actually allies. Um, and it, it actually does talk a lot about what it takes to be a good ally um, before that was really even a term, you know, that we use a lot. Um, and it was, you know, I, in, when, when I was reading the book, it was, you know, like I said, a hard read and it was one that in a lot of places I did not agree with him. Um, but I'm glad that I read it anyway, because, you know, there was a reason I didn't agree with it. And there was a reason that I kind of had that visceral reaction. Um, but it had nothing to do with Malcolm X and everything to do with me. Um, so you know, it was a really good autobiography, um, really poignant at the end. Um, and I would, you know, definitely recommend it. That is me, the autobiography of Malcolm X by Malcolm X and Alex Haley. I think we, as white people, are sort of fed this narrative from like an early age that people who follow Malcolm X or even mm. Malcolm X himself, you know, are like bad, violent, very rebellious people. And so, you know, and as, as kids, we don't really think about that in any like really critical way. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's not until we're adults when we can hopefully like, take another look at that <clears throat> narrative and say, you know, well, actually, like there's yeah. a whole like, other side to this thing that no one bothers to, to teach us. So my next pick 
tonight is one that I think Amber has also read. This is American Snake Pit, Hope, Grit, and Resilience in the Wake of Willowbrook by Dan Tomasulo. And I didn't know a lot about Willowbrook until a couple of years ago when I was browsing YouTube in the night, as one does when you're me. And I came across this news piece from like the 70s. Um, YouTube is kind of amazing for like the things that you can find there. And it was an expose that Geraldo Rivera had done when he was like a very young reporter. And he actually went into Willowbrook, which was a quote unquote school um, in New York for people with developmental disabilities. Um, and what he saw there was horrendous. And that is actually like one of the most notable things that sort of brought about some of the changes that we saw in institutional living. Um, so then I started wanting to know more about Willowbrook and the people who were sent there and kind of what happened to them. And so I found this book and this is written by, he was a PhD student at the time, but he was working you know, in the field and he was asked to manage a group home for several residents who had come out of what they call Willowbrook State School. And these were people who had you know, various types of mental illnesses and mental disabilities. And basically he just sort of told their stories, like both you know, the, their family stories a little bit, but also like what life was like for them now that they were no longer living in an institution. And he talks a lot about people's unwillingness to have a group home in their community, kind of that whole thing about not in my backyard that we see when it comes to group homes or low-income housing, um, any kind of thing that people see as undesirable in a neighborhood. Um, people, you know, have this thing, oh, well, that's a really good idea, but don't, don't put it here, you know, put it somewhere else in another neighborhood, um, preferably like a quote unquote bad neighborhood. And so basically he charts this, you know, the first couple of years in this group home and how he, you know, got to know the residents as more than just like their various diagnoses, but actually as, you know, people with thoughts and feelings and hopes and dreams that are so often not attributed to people with disabilities, be they you know, physical, developmental, um, and we get to know some of these residents too. And I think like parts of it are, are told in a very humorous way. Um, I was reading this at night and I came to a part where it was talking about how this guy would always say, yes, indeedy do, I'll kill you. And somehow like just the way this was read, like made me laugh but not in like a way that said, you know, oh my gosh, like people are stupid, but just like in sort of this incongruous way of just this um, narrator reading this book. Um, and I think it lends a certain sort of, you know, humanity that people don't often want to see when we look at 
the mentally ill or the developmentally disabled. Um, Willowbrook, you know, fortunately has been closed for a very long time. And I'm so glad that people are writing and paying attention to the very many terrible ways that it touched people's lives. So this is American Snake Pit, Hope, Grit, and Resilience in the Wake of Willowbrook by Dan Tomasulo. Okay, so my next book is Seven Fallen Feathers, Racism, Death, and Hard Truths in a Northern City. And it's by Tanya Talga, T-A-L-A-G-A. So this book is talking about um, Thunder Bay. Um, it's a city in northwestern Ontario. Um, it's um, primarily Indigenous people. So our seven feather, fallen feathers, um, it's about seven teens that are, um, they die in various ways. So three of them are found in a river. I think it's three or four of them are found in a river. And it, what Tanya is talking about is mainly how the Thunder Bay police, they really didn't seem to care. Like it took, I think six days before they started, even started thinking about um, searching for this one, the first boy, his name is Jethro. And his family like had already been searching for several days. I think as soon as her, his mom was able to get from their Northern um, community, I think it might've taken maybe two or three days and they found him and they claim that he just drowned, that he must've been drunk and he just drowned. And the hard part for these families is that rarely do like healthy teenagers just like drop into the water and like die. Like it just, it just doesn't make sense to them. So we learn um, that these, all these teens had come to um, Thunder Bay to attend high school. So in their northern communities, or at least a lot of the northern communities, they do have elementary schools, but at a certain point, a lot of the kids have to like go off to bigger cities. And Thunder Bay is the nearest one for a lot of remote communities. So we have all these kids coming and they're like, they've never seen a city. Um, they actually like hand out brochures or like booklets for the students saying like just basic things that you need to know in order to survive a city. So like, um, like stop and look both ways um, before you cross the road. And when you're ready to cross the road, like look like confident, like make sure that you know that you're definitely going to do it. And like, you're not wishy-washy because well, that could be a bad thing. Um, it'll give other points um, like how to catch the bus um, that when you get on the bus, just sit on the bus. Don't stare at people. Just do your own thing. Just sit down and just be quiet. So just stuff like that. Um, so when 
the first few, like, so the seven, these seven teens, they kind of died over many years. So after, I think it's around the death of the third one. So they're the first, our first boy that we lose is Jethro. And then we also have Curran. And I can't quite remember the next boy. But after his death, they began to realize that maybe we need to, like, the education system is not equal whatsoever. It's kind of funny that they didn't kind of figure this out. But a lot of the problems that these kids are having is they're having to go away from their homes. They're staying with these boarding families. And they're kind of, like, left to their own devices. So they'll get together with other kids. And, of course, the, like, the alcohol comes out, the drugs, and, like, they get into trouble, even though a lot of these kids were they're, they're good students. They, they want to become something, but they have no choice but to go to these cities. So what um, a group decided to do was to create a couple of Indigenous-run schools. So everyone from the teachers to the principal were all Indigenous. And so a lot of these kids were able to come to these schools and well, you would think that would be a good thing. But in the book, we realize that like educational funding, like, so it's kind oh. of kind of weird to me, but provincial governments take care of education normally. But for indigenous people, it's the federal government that takes care of us. And like Why? the federal government should have nothing to do with education. Like they don't know what they're doing. I actually um, think it's so a lot of, here. and a lot of the schools, like they have nothing to do with their culture. Like it's just a big problem. So they create these schools, hoping that they're able to kind of create something that's going to help these children to like accommodate, but like acclimatize a lot better. And a lot of this, it's really kind of it was neat. These schools where everyone they just they knew that their job was like 24 seven. So they always looked out for their students. So in the evenings, they would actually drive around, like all the kids had a um, curfew and the staff of the schools would drive around and like kind of usher them back to their plate, to their boarding houses. Like, so it was kind of interesting to see that. So this book, we learn about each of these kids and we learn how the families are trying to get something done because they're like, there's something wrong. Like there's no reason why these healthy children need to die. And a lot of it's leading back to this lack of educational funding on reserves and the lack of ability to do things. Like people just have to go to the cities in order to become something. So this is Seven Fallen Feathers racism, death, and hard truths in a northern city by Tanya Telga. It is on my list of things to read. So my next book is called Dirty Work, um, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America by Ale Press. So full disclosure, I haven't 
like I haven't finished this book, but um, this book talks about, it was written kind of during and after the COVID pandemic um, about the essential jobs, what, what Americans think essential jobs are, who does them and the tolls that it takes, not only on them as the worker, but also society as a whole and what it means that we have these dirty jobs that people have to do and how easy it is for us as you know, upper-class Americans or upper-class whatever to not have to think about the jobs that people do and why they do them. Um, <clears throat> so this book kind of starts out and it actually talks about right after the Holocaust in Germany. And it talked about how a sociologist went to a very you know, successful architect's home in, uh, in Germany right after the war. And they were talking about, you know, the Holocaust and, um, you know, this German architect who said, you know, he was very, uh, I guess what you would call like democratic and he was very much for the rights of people. And, you know, the Holocaust was horrible. But then as the evening goes on, he says, you know, the Holocaust was horrible. But, you know, those Jews, they were just breeding like rats and like they no, were so no, dirty. No, no. Right. They were so dirty and they were so ill kept. Oh. And and, you know, then they came into our country and they, um, you know, and then their sons and doctors started becoming doctors and lawyers. So I don't believe in the Holocaust, but I believe, you know, something had to be done. Um, <clears throat> and he kind of starts out by saying like that is you know, kind of how enlightened people think about dirty jobs. Um, if they don't have to see them, if they don't have to, um, you know, if they don't have to think about, you know, as an example, uh, he talks about like prison guards and people who, sh um, people who pilot drones and, uh, you know, people who work in prison mental hospitals. Um, you know, if you don't see, the distasteful jobs around you and you think that that service is essential, you don't, you don't think about it. It doesn't cross your mind. Um, it's not something that you as a society have to acknowledge. And it also talks a little bit about, you know, the toll that, um, you know, it takes on the worker and their family. Um, you know, it talks a lot about how, you know, in slaughterhouses, um, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of black and brown people who work in slaughterhouses and how, you know, that amount of violence to animals like really affects them and it affects their families. Um, <clears throat> and I could kind of relate to that part of the book because my dad actually, um, when I was little, actually used to work in a slaughterhouse. And um, the only reason that we were able to move to a quote, better quote, uh, area was because the slaughterhouse actually closed. And as part of my dad's settlement package, they actually gave him the opportunity to go to school, to go to like a trade school. Um, and that's the only reason we ever moved. Um, and, you know, had I stayed in the area in which I lived at the time when I was little, I would, you know, education was much poorer. Um, you know, I mean, the opportunities weren't as good. 
And, you know, like I remember stories about like my dad would tell stories about working in the slaughterhouse and how like, you know, there are some meats he won't eat because he knows how they're prepared. And, um, you know, a bunch of my cousins work in slaughterhouses now. And it's like, they, they will not eat the family, you know, Thanksgiving turkey. Um, so this book is just kind of all about what are essential jobs? Why do we not think about the toll that it takes on a society and people in general? Um, and that's not good for a society when you can brush jobs like that under the rug and you don't have to think about how your, you know, food gets to your table or how your animals are slaughtered for, you know, consumption or what happens to mentally ill people in prison or what happens to, you know, the drone operators. Um, that is not civilization that's actually going backwards, even though people like to think that, you know, even really, you know, so-called enlightened people like to think, you know, um, a lot of talk, but not a lot of action. So it was a really interesting, it's a really interesting read. Um, and again, that book is Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America by uh, AOL Press. Wow. Yes, super interesting. We, we don't think no. a lot about those things. Um, I remember <clears throat> there's a town um, not too far from where I live, like a township that's loosely affiliated with Detroit. And it used to be this like sort of, I don't know, like nice family friendly place. They always had the Polish festival there. And when I was living out of state, this thing came on the news about how somehow no, like there was no trash pickup in this place anymore. And this whole area was just like filled with trash. And there were like giant rats, like the size of my cat, um, that were just living there because, you know, no one was, there was no sanitation department that was responsible for this area. And I just remember, you know, everyone saying like, well, you know, people, they just don't want to work. And this is, I'm like, yeah. And like, look at all of us, you know, sitting here, like we're not going there and picking up the trash. Um, you know, people have a lot to say about these types mm -hmm. of jobs, but they don't actually like want to do them. They don't do them. No, they just like complain <clears throat> that other people aren't doing them well enough. My next book is also super depressing, but super important. This is I Can't Breathe, A Killing on Bay Street by Mike Taibbi. So for a lot of us, like we associate I Can't Breathe with the last words of George Floyd. And that's true. Like those were the words that he said over and over and over. I think something like 27 times. Um as he was being killed. But in 2014, Eric Garner also spoke those words as he was being killed by the New York City police. So he was not homeless. He was not known to be mentally ill. And I say this because, you know, so often when we talk about someone being killed by the police, so many people are looking for sort of excuses for like why the police did this and they 
are always looking for like, well, you know, if he hadn't been acting erratically or if he hadn't been on drugs or blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I think it's, it's important to say that this was a man, you know, doing his best to live a productive life and to take care of his family. Now, he didn't have a lot of the opportunities that a lot of us have. And so he didn't necessarily make some of the choices that we would make. So his job at the time of his death was selling bootlegged cigarettes because apparently in the early, like 2010, 2011, this huge increase was placed on cigarette tax. And so people were paying like tons of money for cigarettes in New York. So people would drive down to Virginia and they would buy cigarettes that were not, that were not taxed in the same way. And they would bring them back to New York. And they had this sort of network of people that would sell either packs of cigarettes or individual cigarettes known as Lucy's to just people on the street who wanted them. And this was how they made money. And for a lot of people, this was, you know, a fairly lucrative um, way of making a living. And Eric Garner was one of those people. Now, the police were not very fond of this. Um, they, you know, would always like harass him. They would talk about how he was loitering, how he was obstructing like law and order somehow. And eventually when he resisted arrest one day, because he said like he wasn't doing anything illegal, he didn't need to go with the police. They, they killed him. He was put in an illegal chokehold and he died. And as he died, he told them again and again and again that he couldn't breathe. And some of the responses that the police had to this reminded me a lot of things that I heard people say during like the George Floyd, um, during the time of his death and during Derek Chauvin's trial for killing him. And there was this whole thing about, well, like if you can talk to say that you can't breathe, then you must be breathing. So you know, that's, that's not real. Um, and people had all these things to say back in 2014 as well. Um, the officers who were responsible for Eric Garner's death were never prosecuted. Um, they continued to work as police officers and still may for all I know. Um, but this book looks at not only Eric Garner, but everything that goes into this whole culture that we have about very violent policing toward people who are black and brown um, and why, why people don't stand up to it, why no one is able to really like bring it down. Um, this was written in 2017 and he talks about just various things, you know, that go into policing and the ways in which police officers are trained, the ways in which they're taught to cover up for one another, um, the ways they can falsify arrest documents so that even if they are arresting or detaining someone for like an illegitimate purpose, 
um, they'll, you know, kind of cover their butts and make it so that people think that they're, you know, doing their jobs instead of just harassing people needlessly and in way too many cases, killing them. Um, this is just a, such an important book, I think, especially for people who have this idea that like, if you aren't doing anything wrong, like the police won't bother you. And that if the police stop you or approach you, like it must be because you are doing something. And I think in a perfect world, we might want to assume that that's true. Um, but so much of what's going on in society today should teach us that it is not true. So this is I Can't Breathe, A Killing on Bay Street by Mark Taibbi. Um, you know, like I, I, I talk a lot, you know, to friends of mine who, you know, have family members who are police officers and stuff like that. And, you know, I always say, like, I wouldn't want their job for no. anything. But there's also, you know, an, any time that you have an unbalanced power dynamic, um, that's just really ripe for, you know, abuse. So, I mean, do I think like all police officers are bad? No. Do I think there's something wrong with the policing system? Absolutely. And when there's little to no accountability for right. things that happen, like I yeah. firmly believe that, you know, Derek Chauvin believed that he would get away yeah. with killing George Floyd, that like, yeah you know, nothing would happen to him. And I don't think he was really prepared for the fact that he was found guilty and sent to prison as he, mm. you know, he should have been. But I, I really think he like didn't expect that because history didn't give him any reason to expect <clears throat> it. Yeah. So my next book is Highway of Tears, a true story of Racism, indifference, and the pursuit of justice for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And it's by Jessica McDermott. So this book is about missing and murdered women and children. Um, and the Highway of Tears is a highway um, that goes between Prince Rupert and Prince George. Um, over the years, DRCMP, they claim at, at the writing of this book, and I think it was 2017, um, they claim that there are about, I think they said 1,200 um, missing women and girls. But with all the stories and the, the things that people are learning through, um, they've done like fort task forces and like even just like summits that they've done where they've invited people to come. What if they do have a loved one that's missing? So the estimates they're, they're thinking is closer to like 4,000. And this whole, this discrepancy kind of gives you kind of an idea of what this book is kind of looking at. And it's looking at how the disappearance and the murder of women and girls, especially Indigenous women and girls, it's like nobody really cares 
in a lot of cases, the police would do this like preliminary. First, they would tell you like, sorry, but um, she's a she's a girl, she's a teen, or she's a woman. She can make her own decisions. So you gotta wait. You can't just report her missing. So like, even though one of I know one of the girls was like fifteen, and you would think like every if it was a white fifteen year old, then definitely there all the uh, what are they called? Amber Alert would go out. And this did not happen. The families were told, no, you need to wait 72 hours and then come back and we'll see where to go from there. And like even the investigations, so she talks about some of the girls and the women have gone missing. And she talks, she has like different excerpts from some of the families. And like, honestly, I was in tears at times throughout this book just because of how committed the families were to kind of getting the police to take things seriously more seriously and a lot of so then so she's talking about all these girls and the first one that's officially kind of written down was in the late 1980s but they're thinking that there's women as as early as like the early 1970s that have gone missing and like I, as I said, like nobody seems to care. So she, in, she interviews a lot of the families, and she talks about their stories. And we learn about girls who, they just like, they just wanted to live. Like they were great in school. They were wonderful neighbors. They were wonderful whatever. And in order for because these communities are so small and on this highway. It's kind of like the communities are very kind of spread out, these little communities. Like there's like Smithers is one of the places that we visit a lot in the book. It's a small place um, along this highway. And one of the girls, she wanted to go to a party. So she told her friend, I'll meet you there. I have to do something. Like I have to go take care of my siblings for a little bit longer and I'll just meet you there. And like she's done this whole, uh, like a lot of it's, they don't have Lyft there or Uber or like they don't even really have a bus service. I think um, by the end of the writing, like by the time of the writing of this book, I think they do have like a loop that goes from different places to different places, but you're still stuck on that schedule. So you, a lot of the, these people, they go out and they hitchhike. Like hitchhiking is like the big top way of getting places. Like they don't have like Greyhound has stopped um, servicing these areas. So a lot of these women, they'll go off and they're just gone. Um, some of these women have been found murdered, but many of them are just disappeared. So she talks about that and she talks about um, how there's some of the families have started doing these annual walks um, from so this one woman she was walking and she decided oh I'm gonna start in I think it was Prince Rupert or no Terrace she started in Terrace and she was going to walk to Prince Rupert and she was doing this in honor of I think it was her sister that went missing and she meets up with some of the other families and they end up like at first she was only going to do 150 kilometers and it ended up being like 
um, several more hundred kilometers. They ended up walking right from um, Prince Rupert to Prince George, which is a really long distance. I think they said it was something like 1500 or something like that kilometers. So could you imagine walking that? Like not everyone Mm. walked the entire time. Like, so the two women were the ones that started and then they would have people like join them along the way. And then some people would like break off to go because they have to live their lives and make their money. And then other people would join. So they do these annual walks and the very first walk, they end up in, I think it was Prince George, where there was a summit. So they start, they, that's where they started learning about more women that have gone missing. And so she talks about the summit and about things that were promised. And then she talks about like the murdered and missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls um, report. So there was like an investigation through the government that was done and what needs to be done. And they're realizing that Indigenous women, not only are they kind of like devalued as women, but now they also have the extra X in the, the we don't care box because they're Indigenous. So we need to change that attitude and we need to realize that women are important. So I found this book a little bit scattered at times. Um, She made references to things that I didn't quite get why it was there. Like she should make reference to like um, the Picton trial, um, which is the trial of a man who he says that he killed 49 Indigenous women and girls from the Vancouver East downtown East side area. Oh, I read about that. Oh, I remember. Yeah. And his pigs kind of ate yeah. their bodies. Yeah. Ah, so yes. she makes reference to that. And she says like, I'm pretty sure that we have a serial killer. That's, that's maybe not every single one of mm. these killings is that, but something's going <clears throat> on and it took <clears throat> you guys forever to figure <clears throat> out about Picton. So how long is it going to, how many women and children are going to have to die before you figure out like what's happening here? So this is Highway of Tears, a true story of racism, indifference, and the pursuit of justice for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And it's by Jessica McDermott. McDermott. I own this book. I have not read it yet, but I do own it. Well, my last, uh, my last book of the evening um, is, a, uh, in a sense, a little happier. Um, it is called Life After Death by Damien Eccles. Um, so Damien Eccles was one of the men who was, um, they called them the West Memphis Three. But Damien Eccles lived in a small town in Arkansas called West Memphis. And um, he was put on death row for a crime he did not commit. Um, And we learn about Damien and his family. He grew up very poor. Uh, He was a poor um, white uh, white kid. 
and um, just the opportunities that he did and didn't have. Um, so when he was a teenager, he, you know, made a poor decision that teenagers tend to make. Shoot, I know some adults who've made that decision. Um, and he was arrested by a juvenile officer who told, uh, so this juvenile officer seemed to have a, uh, an obsession with uh, demons and the devil and satanic rituals, um, all those, all those things. And so he knew that Damien Eccles liked, like, you know, heavy metal, this was kind of, you know, the start of the goth move, you know, the goth era. Um, You know, if you went to high school, when I did, you know, you always knew who the goth kids were. And, you know, Damien Eccles listened to heavy metal with his friends and he didn't go to church. And yeah, Marilyn Manson. Yep. Uh, (laughs) Come on. Um, (laughs) I have to admit, I listened to a little bit of that myself when I was a teenager. Um, And, you know, just, he didn't, you know, he didn't go to church. He didn't, um, you know, his family wasn't the right family. Um, and when they arrested him, they told his family, look, he's crazy. He's psychotic. He needs to go to a mental institution. And his family, not knowing how the justice system worked, not knowing like what their rights were, they didn't really have, you know, a great lawyer um, said, okay, well, let's send him there. And so, you know, he went to mental institutions for a few years um, in and out. He went to, you know, just the, um, you know, the choices that were made for him in in the justice system um, and how he really did not, he did not commit this crime. His friends did not commit this crime, but no one, you know, he talks a lot about the media and how they were, you know, how they were portrayed in the media. and that the media had an agenda, the police had an agenda, you know, the, uh, his lawyer, um, you know, wouldn't really fight for him during the trial because his lawyer said, Hey, I have to face this judge every day. Um, and I don't want to piss him off. Oh, Um, that's good. Yes. That's what you should say if you're someone's lawyer, but it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and he talks about, you know, people like to think that the justice system is good and that the justice system is fair. And, you know, he said, if you ever go, you know, and see death row, he said, you're not seeing rich people on death row. You're not seeing, uh, you know, people who could afford really good lawyers on death row. He said, you're Mm. seeing people who are mentally ill. You're seeing poor people. You're seeing brown and black people, but you're not seeing, you know, rich white people on death row. It's not happening. Um, You know, and he talks, uh, you know, um, he meets his wife uh, while he's in prison. He talks a lot about Buddhism and religion and how that was really important to him. Um, And, you know, he talks a little bit about the process of becoming free, but not a whole lot. And even for them to be you know, even for them to be set free, he had to plead guilty because the state of Arkansas did not want to admit that they were wrong. Oh, Um, yeah. And they, you know, they said, we'll release you and, you know, you you all can leave, but you have to plead guilty. Um, 
So this was a really hard read at the end. It was sort of hopeful, but to be honest, not really. Um, for an extra uh, dose of reality, he actually reads the audiobook himself. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, just a really uh, hard read. Um, you know, it made me think a lot about the death penalty and whether or not, you know, you know, I, I kind of waver back and forth on this issue. Like, am I okay with it? Am I not okay with it? Um, I see why people want it, but, you know, he talks a lot about, you know, society is only as good as it's, you know, I don't want to say weakest members, but I think you guys kind of get what I mean. And like, if your solution to a problem is to kill someone, then can you really say you're like a civilized society? Uh, so that book, again, is Life After Death by Damien Eccles. I have to look for this. Yeah, it's uh, something. So Amber started with a young adult novel, and I'm going to make my last book a young adult novel. This is You Truly Assumed by Layla Sabreem. This is the story of three black Muslim girls and the bond they form over an internet blog. So we have Sabria, Zekat, and Farah. They all live in different parts of the country and they all kind of have different relationships with their identity as a black Muslim. But when there is a terrorist attack near where Zabria lives, and she decides to write kind of an online journal, they connect with one another and they form this community of Black Muslims who are really working hard to process everything that goes along with Islamophobia. Um, I grew up in a suburb of Detroit where a lot of Muslim people live. Um, my best friend growing up was Muslim. And so I spent a lot of time with her and her family. And so I learned, you know, from an early age about Muslim people and obviously, you know, learned to, to view them as not that different from my own family. But in the wake of 9-11, um, that changed for a lot of people, even people who were relatively tolerant of Muslims, you know, before 9-11, um, many of them became very intolerant. And there was a lot of violence um, toward Muslim people, both like where, where my family lived and just around the, the country at large. So these three young women deal with racism and Islamophobia pretty much on a daily basis. Um, some of it is like, you know, very, very in your face. There's no way to look away from it. Some of it is a little bit more covert and you can, you know, kind of view it as like what a lot of us call microaggression, um, but it's, it's there and it takes a toll on each of them day after day after day. And so when Sabria starts this blog, which she calls You Truly Assumed, 
they find kind of an outlet and a place where they can bond with people whose experiences are very much like their own. But we all know the internet really well, at least I think we do, since like some of us are on a podcast and some of us are listening to a podcast. I think we're pretty familiar with the internet. And we know that on the internet live lots and lots of trolls. And so people decided that they didn't like this blog and they wanted to shut it down. And so now these three girls are trying to decide, like, do they kind of stand up for their right to speak their truth on the internet? Or do they retreat sort of for their own safety and, you know, let it be shut down? Um, I loved this book so much. I think it's exactly the kind of thing that my, you know, my friend and her family would have wanted to read when we were growing up. I think it's, it talks about the bonds that people can form, even if you've never actually met the people that you're bonded to. Um, technology has done a lot to draw us closer together, even as it pulls us further apart. Um, there is a lot here to unpack about how we blame an entire group of people for the actions of a few and kind of how and why those beliefs are allowed to flourish and thrive. Um, this is a novel, but it has its, its root in a lot of truth, as I think many of us can attest, especially living in a post 9-11 America. So this is You Truly Assumed by Layla Sabrim. This is a debut novel, and I am very, very eager to see what she has up her sleeve next for us. I will definitely be getting this. It sounds really interesting. Yes, I liked it a lot. So my last book is not a young adult at all. I am doing Know My Name by Chanel Miller. Ah, uh, yes. So Chanel Miller was a student. Um, she was sexually assaulted by another student on Stanford campus one night on her while she was walking home. Um, there were eyewitnesses. Like this was called like the perfect case. You would think this would be cut and dry. So there were eyewitnesses to the attack. Um, she, like Brock Turner, so we know who the uh, culprit is, he takes off and he runs away. He, gets, he tries to get away. And we also have like um, samples and evidence was actually collected properly. And you would think that this would definitely be like a cut and dry and a really good kind of case that would go her way. Um, he only gets six months. And this is not cool. So our synopsis, like I like how the synopsis starts. And it says, she was known to the world as Emily Doe. So she did a victim's in impact statement that she read like to the court um, before the sentencing. And it was posted on BuzzFeed. 
And within like, I think they said like within four days, already 11, it went viral. 11 million people had seen it. And it actually, her statement, it got read on the Congress, on Congress floor. And it inspired some changes in Californian law. Um, and in, in addition to this, the judge that oversaw the case was actually, his, his job was taken away. So a lot of the case is interesting itself, but I would say the most impactful parts of the book is just listening to how it, the whole case itself impacted her. So like she talks about how victims are re-victimized. Like when you have the collection of evidence, you have all the questioning, um, when you're in court and how you're like cross-examined by um, the defendant's lawyer, um, how you're always kind of treated like it was your fault. Mm -hmm. Like in the media, she was no, they they said she was, um, I think it said she was drunk, drunk and unconscious woman found on Stanford campus or something to that extent. Mm -hmm. So she, through this book, she wanted to reclaim her name and and kind of tell people like, no, I am not the unconscious drunk person that was found on like on campus. I, I'm Chanel, like I, I have dreams, I have um, aspirations, like this case has like really impacted not only me, but also my family. Like she talks about how she had to like her, um, I think it was her sister had to take time off work in order to, cause she felt that she, it's not that she had to, but she, she needed to like for her own abilities to kind of, because mm-hmm. it impacts not only the victim themselves, but it also impacts your family and your friends because she went through a period of time where she just, she didn't want to do anything. Like she just wanted to stay in her bed where it was safe. So she talks about that. And like one of the things that I actually, so I read this a year or two ago and I one of the comments I make in my review is that, the emotion just pours off the page. And that's just, I think that was the one, this was one of my five-star reads for that year that I read it. So this is Know My Name, and it's by Chanel Miller. Well, this ends um, our social justice episode. Thank you to Amber and Brooke for finding such timely and important books to talk about tonight. As always, thanks goes out to Christine for all of her editing. And of course, because we couldn't have a podcast if no one listened to it, I thank each and every one of you who joins us each week as we talk about great books. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an 
author interview and of course the guide to new releases and some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care everybody. Thank you.